this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Alexander from Near Protocol. Alex started his professional career at Microsoft in 2009, then joined Meme SQL in 2011 as engineer number one where he worked for five years as architect and director of engineering. Alex is an accomplished engineer. He's won awards. Uh, he is very well sought after. And we had a great conversation about Near, which is effectively a scalable smart contract platform that supports decentralized applications of almost any kind. They're using um, contract language uh, called TypeScript, which is a type sub- superset of JavaScript. Um, they're using a lot of shard scaling. We talked about their consensus methodology called Nightshade. And we also talked about their token and some of their other iterations around their wallet. This is a great conversation. It gets a little technical, but it's really worthwhile because this is a project that a lot of people have been talking about. So definitely buckle up, learn as much as you can. Remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And you'll hear the show with Alexander right after this. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Alexander from Neo with us. Alexander, how are you today? Hi, very good. Thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. This is a project I've been hearing about left, right, and center. So many people have been excited about this, and I think we're going to find out very quickly why. So Alexander started his career at Microsoft in 2009 um, and then joined uh, MEMS SQL, which is, you can effectively tell the newbies what that stands for, in 2011 as the number one engineer. Um, you've been working for years in this space, and you've won a lot of accolades for it, and now you're building near. So, Alexander, if you could, you know, give the listeners just a brief overview of yourself and what near is, and then we got lots of questions to find out what you guys are up to. Sure. So, so, so as you mentioned, I, I was first employee at MemSQL. Um, MemSQL is a distributed database. It's a very, uh, it, it's one of the most um, performant databases in the world today, and uh, one of the most feature complete. Uh, they, they actually just released a new version, which uh, which beats most of the other databases on on three industry standard benchmarks. Uh, and important thing about MemSQL is that it's a sharded database, meaning that if your data, like like if you have a lot of data, if you have terabytes of data, hundreds of terabytes of data, uh, you can just launch multiple instances of MemSQL. Uh, in a cluster, you can ingest all your data, and then you can interact with that data as if it was a single database. So it logically completely abstracts out from you the knowledge that it is stored on multiple machines. And that's a very complex problem to build a database in such a way that uh, the end user doesn't need to think about uh, the topology of their data, how exactly it is stored on those on that multitude of machines. And that's exactly what we're trying to bring to blockchain, right? So blockchain today uh, is uh, very inefficient. It's uh, if you think about Ethereum, for example, Ethereum can do 12 transactions per second, where that number is very vaguely defined. But um, let's say it's like on that order, and there are ways to to scale that number to larger extent without sharding, right? So there are multiple projects which can bring it to 100 to even 1,000 transactions per second. And if we speak about speak about very simple transactions like payment transactions. People even bring it to hundreds of thousands of transactions per second, right? But if we're talking about more complex smart contracts, 
it will always be the case that uh, unless you shard, uh, you will be limited by by the by the capacity of a single machine to process those transactions uh, to begin with, right? And so we're building near protocol, which is a sharded sharded blockchain, where the the entire state of the system, so all the accounts, all the uh, everything that the smart contracts uh, need to uh, persist. As well as all the processing, right? So execution of all the transactions, all the network interaction, it is all separated, right? So there is no global. Uh, so, like, effectively, if you send a transaction, it's not going to be globally distributed to all the validators or like all the participants in the system. It will be distributed to a small subset of them, which are responsible for processing it. And building such a system in a secure fashion, in a secure and usable fashion, is very hard, right? So, because not everybody now processes the transaction, you need to make sure that. Whichever set is actually processing it uh, is not uh, is not corrupted, right? And uh, and and uh, because you know the primary purpose of the of the validators or like miners in the in the blockchains are to make money, right? They 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 all inherently corruptible, right? So if if you can provide them better incentive than what they get from the operating the system properly, they're corruptible, right? And so designing a designing sharded blockchain in a way that they even if they are corruptible, they cannot do much harm uh, or like compromise the system is a, is a very challenging problem. But secondly, designing it in such a way that the end user doesn't need to care about sharding is, is also relative, pretty challenging. And so those are primary things we research and build it near. Right. Um, but besides that, the way we like to think about sharded blockchains is you can think of like a huge stadium in the middle of a desert, right? With the With the metaphor being that uh, you know, if today you have a like a, if you build like a stadium which can fit 100,000 people, and then another one next to it which can fit 120,000 people, those stadiums competing with each other on the size, right? But for as long as you only have five people total who are willing to watch the games, uh, that is all pretty useless, right? And so the blockchain is to an extent in that state today, where there are some use cases which are t- getting some traction, but globally, the the adoption is very low, right? If you go to AppRadar, you will see that. Uh, the most used applications on blockchain have uh, on the order of 2,000 daily active users, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the second thing that we heavily investing at, uh, heavily investing it at near is usability. We're making it extremely simple to develop for near, but then we're making it extremely simple for users to use those applications built for near, right? Because complexity of the blockchain is one of the primary reasons why. The adoption is so low, right? Like buying a crypto kitty today is extremely hard, right. uh, and uh, and like many people drop off while they try to do that. Like installing MetaMask, trying to get Ether, uh, paying for gas, seeing transactions fail, all of that creates a lot of uh, unnecessary errands as people try to to use the applications. But it's so much, yeah. fun, Alexander. Come on, <laughs> it's like playing Game of Thrones on your computer. Um, you never know yeah. if you. You know, you're never gonna know if you're gonna wind up in jail in, in nights in nights in King's Landing, um, and so I want to know a little bit more about. So for the listeners, and we've talked about this before, the listeners are more outside the box than you and I, and so the two main out there, the two main consensus models are proof of work and proof of stake, and there's been more and more conversations I've had recently that the underlying architecture of the Bitcoin blockchain being that it's block after block and that yes, there is the 10 minutes and yes, it's done for security purposes, but at the end of the day, it's inherently going to be slow. 
And so, you know, I'm curious kind of, you know, how are you addressing scalability? Because at the end of the day, you know, you can have something that's, you know, cooler, you know, for instance, you know, say you have your new decentralized Twitter or your new decentralized Instacart, but if it's not as fast or faster than the previous legacy systems, no one's really going to want to use it. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about scalability. Right. So, so one thing to notice here is that, for example, Ethereum, they, uh, they, they're very close to, to, to Bitcoin in many ways, right? But in Ethereum, the block time is 12 seconds. And there are some arguments about the security of it, but still Ethereum is, is pretty secure, right? It's, it's being widely used and, uh, uh, well, at least until today, it wasn't compromised. Uh, and so with, the, with some technical uh, design decisions, you can actually bring up the, the block time production pretty low, right? 12 seconds is not disastrously bad. You, you can bring it even lower. So with proof of stake, uh, proof of stake per se does not solve that many problems because uh, the 12 seconds is not driven by the proof of work. The, the 12 seconds is driven by the fact that you need reasonable certainty that the honest participants get the block delivered to them. Uh, not much slower than the dishonest participants who can be assumed to have zero latency. Uh, so one thing is if you use BFT consensus, for example, then the concern is not as big because uh, uh, in, a BFT, in a BFT consensus, that is not part of the security assumption that the honest participants can interact faster than dishonest participants. Right? So in a BFT consensus, you can, you can bring down the block uh, production time to how much time it takes to actually reach a Byzantine consensus. right? And uh, in a decentralized system, uh, that is believed to be around two to three seconds, right? In a more centralized system, uh, in a system where the validators are sort of mostly known and they and they can optimize the hardware and the links between them, you can bring it to, to less than a second, right? So EOS is an example where the validators are, are well known uh, uh, and uh, and they can produce blocks pretty frequently. Do you th- uh, do you think in that situation, that architecture, that there's less security? Uh, you, you mean if we use BFT consensus? Well, in the case of EOS, you know, with known validators, does that increase the attack vector? So, so that's very. Uh, I, I, I think it's 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 a very subjective topic. In in general, security in blockchains depends on a lot of mathematical properties, but but also on a lot of social interactions, and and those are harder to analyze, right? Because while EOS is heavily centralized, right, corrupting. Uh, like if you if you corrupt, uh, how many do they have? Twenty twenty one, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you corrupt uh, fifteen of those, you, you can do arbitrary damage, right? If you corrupt uh, eight of them, you already have some theoretical possibilities to do quite a bit of damage. Uh, but at the same time, if you think about Bitcoin, right? If you if you manage to corrupt the three mining pools and carefully orchestrate them, you can also do quite a bit of damage, right? So it's a little more subjective. But clearly, I think EOS is uh, by design not as like you know, bitcoin by design should be decentralized eos by design cannot be decentralized right so so eos is in my personal opinion is significantly less secure than um than bitcoin or ethereum right are uh right but but if you do but if you do bft consensus on uh, uh in a more decentralized fashion right when you sample for example validator pools which has its own problems then then your block production time can still be pretty good it could be like on the order of three seconds uh, which is uh, which is very usable for the for the base layer, right? If you if you need lower latency at that point, you should probably start using um, layer two solutions. Right. 
So Near is a scalable smart contract platform that supports decentralized applications. Uh, mm -hmm. And so there's a bunch of different things here that you guys are working on. And so with the languages, so writing contracts using TypeScript, which is a superset of JavaScript, uh, or any other languages which comply with WASM. And so would love to hear kind of, this has been, you know, I've been having the conversations with other guests on the show that for developers and for more mainstream adoption from the development side, it needs to get easier. You know, too much emphasis on solidity, which is not a very universally learned language. Um, and it's something that people are still trying to pick up. You know, talk to us about the common languages and why you guys developed it that way. Mm -hmm. so, so we chose TypeScript primarily because it's a flavor of JavaScript. And JavaScript is, uh, is probably one of the most known languages in the world. And if you know JavaScript, you can start writing TypeScript almost immediately. So the, the learning curve is instantaneous. Uh, with Solidity, it is not quite the case. To, to, write, to write Solidity properly, you need, you need to go through, uh, through quite a bit of learning, right? right. Uh, and another problem with Solidity is that Solidity has some obscure, uh, it, it has like some some, obs some obscure little corner cases which can actually result in disastrous consequences when you uh, when you ultimately run your smart contracts, right? Like you, you can you can miss an attribute and then your contract can get self-destructed, right? Or uh, I, I think that was the the parity bug, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and actually, TypeScript is not the, the perfect language from from that perspective. TypeScript also can uh, because it's JavaScript and JavaScript wasn't designed to be a language in which you would write uh, smart contracts to begin with. But but TypeScript is a very great is a, is a great entry point. So unless you're writing some sort of MakerDAO, uh, TypeScript would be a great point for people to enter. We, we also support other languages which compile into Wasm, uh, particularly Rust. And Rust is a very uh, I, I personally find Rust to be a great language for smart contracts because it's very limiting and it's very strict. So so when you write it. It's it's very hard to to build something that you don't actually intend to build, right? So so we support both Rust and TypeScript, uh, and uh, with TypeScript primarily for uh, more like an onboarding language, and Rust for more critical deployments. So the network um, also, in terms of scaling, we talked about a little bit of that. We alluded to some of the conversations, and we talked about sharding. Um, Scaling horizontally using the same sharding technology that powers these databases behind the largest companies in the world. What does that mean? Can you unpack that? You know, I don't think a lot of people. I, there's this problem, Alexander, that a lot of people, you know, who start hearing about crypto slash blockchain slash you know digital assets, you know, whatever you want to call it today. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, it's new emerging technology. You know, this paper in 2008, 2009 from the Satoshi character came about and then everything started talking about blockchain. Um, but it sounds like, you know, databases and it sounds like large companies around the world have been using this technology for much longer than that. So can you kind of unpack that a little bit about what you guys are doing there? Sure. So so, so if you think about uh, regular blockchain, right, Bitcoin, right, the security of Bitcoin uh, largely comes from the fact that every single participant validates every single block, right? And so even if someone creates an invalid block, even if that someone has more than 51% of the mining power uh, and continue building on top of the invalid block, nobody will ever respect it because everybody will see that it's invalid and disregard it, right? So, so that will be important when we get to the, to the sharding, All right? So sharding, the way it works is instead of having one blockchain, we now have multiple, 
right? So let's say we have 10 blockchains uh, and each blockchain has its own validators, right? So for example, if, if previously we had 100 miners who mined on a single blockchain, now you can think of it as 10 blockchains and each blockchain has 10 miners, right? And, uh, uh, and because uh, those 10 miners, let's say they don't communicate at all with each other, then each blockchain will be as fast as uh, as the common blockchain was before. And so then you get 10x uh, speed up in terms of throughput. Now, this approach has a multitude of problems. The biggest problem is security. Uh, if before you would have to corrupt 51% of the 100 people, now you need to corrupt 51% of 10 people to corrupt at least one shard, right? And start creating reworks uh, uh, or things like that. And to address that problem, the, more, the common approach is to shuffle people occasionally. So you would assign 10 people to every shard they would produce few blocks and then you would reshuffle them with like you know let's say on the next day and so the idea now is that if the for you to have uh let's say six people out of 10 in any shard uh if you do the math you will see that in the in the whole population of the 100 validators you would need to have something also on the order of 51 percent uh and so what we're trying to solve here is that uh uh so so let me rewind back for a second right so so if we were not shuffling them uh but but we but we randomly assign them, then if you only for you to corrupt one shard, you would actually have to have on the order of fifty one percent in the whole population. But as a malicious actor, you would not actually try to corrupt fifty one percent of the initial population of hundred validators. Instead, you will wait until the validators get assigned. You will identify the validators in the shard you care, and then you will go to them after that, and you will corrupt them adaptively. Right? So that's called adaptive adversary uh, sort of assumption. Right? We're assuming that the adversary can actually identify people who validate blockchain uh, and they can choose the subset that they care about and corrupt them later down the road. And so if you if you rotate them periodically, like if you rotate them one day, so then for as long as you assume that within one day an adversary cannot corrupt the sufficient number of people, you, you save. Uh, and then the question is how, how reasonable of an assumption it is that adaptive adversary cannot corrupt in one day. And I personally don't find it reasonable. If, if you think it is reasonable, uh, then, then sharding becomes very simple, right? So then this approach, when you rotate validators every day uh, and then you assign a small subset of them to every shard, that, that is actually sufficiently secure. And there are blockchains that actually build this sort of sharding. Zilliqa is a good example. That's exactly what Zilliqa is building. Uh, but once you think that you can ad adapt, uh, corrupt adversely, uh, um, like adaptively, right? Then it becomes a huge problem because now you still cannot... The idea is that you want to have so many shards that it is unfeasible for all the validators to validate every shard. And so you do need to, 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 uh, to sample a small number of validators to every shard, right? And so preventing adaptive adversary from reaching out to them and corrupting is a, is a big research problem. But once it is solved, th then you can get a security which is uh, arguably comparable. It's probably not comparable, but it's still pretty high security. It's, uh, it's sufficient security in a decentralized, uh, for a decentralized blockchain. And then the next biggest problem is that those blockchains are independent, right? And so if they don't communicate to each other, they're not as helpful, they're not as powerful of a, powerful as a single blockchain. Mm -hmm. Because if it happens that your account is on one shard and my account is on another shard and they cannot communicate to each other, then it's not a very helpful blockchain, right? It's not very helpful if people can only participate, communicate within one shard. Mm -hmm. So the second interesting problem is how do you make those shards communicate and send transactions between each other and how you make it fast? I like to create analogies, try to make it easy for people who are not as technically savvy as you. Um, and so let's take this. So traditional Bitcoin blockchain, you know, proof of work or in effect, maybe sometimes proof of stake. You have two cars going down 
a highway. It's the back roads of, of the country. You're driving through some farmland. It's two lanes. You know, that's basically it. In, mm-hmm. shards, in shards, it sounds like there's effectively potentially hundreds of lanes. Is that kind of the way it goes? It would be like hundreds of highways. Hundreds and of each, one, each one has two lanes. Yeah. Interesting. And so, so, so the difference here being that, you know, on the Bitcoin, the cars can, you know, they, they can approach each other, they can open windows and talk to each other, while in sharding, if they happen to be on two different highways, they, they cannot do that. Right. Okay. And so what about, and so getting transactions and, you know, obviously, you know, to scale and transaction speeds in your design is there gas is there is there something that makes things go faster yeah so so there is gas uh however so so one interesting analogy here uh is uh consider aws right so aws has uh, uh some can some constant number of servers right well it's 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 changing they're buying new servers they're deprecating old servers but on the large like uh if you think like point in time, right? They have some number of servers and they have very, like they have variable demand. And yet the price of the AWS server barely changes, right? So the idea is that if you have a supply of uh, throughput, which exceeds the demand, you actually don't need to have variable uh, variable price. And it's way easier for people who use the blockchain to actually think in terms of constant price. And so something we try to model in, in our economics is we're trying to make the, the the price of the gas to be constant, and not just constant in our internal tokens. We're actually trying to make it constant in U.S. dollars, um, and and we like we're doing a lot of research in that direction. But yeah, there, there is a gas. Uh, you need to pay for every transaction. You can actually pay more if you want to be to be sure it goes through, in case the system is actually congested. But most of the time, the idea will be to have fixed price per transaction, which changes very very um, infrequently, and that price should be denominated in stable tokens. I hope you don't mind. I want to ask you a philosophical question. And so mm-hmm. something I've been thinking about a lot. So you just mentioned in US dollars. So whenever we look at the Bitcoin price, it's in US dollars. Whenever we look at the price of Ethereum, it's in US dollars. Do you ever see a point in time in the, in the near term future? And I'm not asking you to necessarily forecast, but when we say a Bitcoin is worth a Bitcoin, Ether is worth Ether, instead of having to always kind of bring it to the US dollar. Right, so so we did think about it quite a bit. Uh, I personally don't have my own personal opinion how that will unroll, uh, but hopefully the idea is that long term, uh, the whichever stable unit will exist there, that stable unit will be attached to something which is not U.S. dollar, but something more. Uh, because technically, yes, U.S. dollar price is is fully governed centrally by. Uh, I mean, there's a centralized entity which can always emit more U.S. dollars, right? So that's a problem. Uh, but yeah, so. Whether whether ultimately the stable the unit of stable economy will be one of the crypto tokens or if it's going to be something attached more to to everyday people needs that's unclear but I think yeah long term if that all flies and, and blockchain actually becomes the the status quo for people to to run services and uh, uh, like de- de- uh, decentralized finance then hopefully it is not going to be pegged to US dollar right but short term obviously it has to be because US dollar is what people transact in in the world. So in the world of Bitcoin, in the world of Ethereum, Ethereum has gone through so many different metamorphoses over the last few years. Or it's going to go through a significant one, going from proof of work to proof of stake 
there's been conversation around sharding. There's been conversation about them bringing in ZK proofs. Um, you know, effectively, I'm just curious, you know, when you were thinking about near, did you think about some of the issues? Because Bitcoin is Bitcoin. You know, it's, as you mentioned, it's stable. I don't think it's really going to, it's evolving a little bit here and there. Um, but, you know, in all intents and purposes, they're not really going to bring in smart contracts. There is script within the, the Bitcoin blockchain. But, you know, they seem to be more accommodative to maybe layer two, layer three additions instead of obviously layer one. Um, and so, you know, with Ethereum, it seems like it's just been kind of trying to find its way. And so, you know, I'm just curious because it sounds like with what you guys are building at Near that, you know, maybe you saw some of the faults with Ethereum and said, you know what, maybe we can actually do it better than them. Is that kind of how it happened? Right. So, so actually, we, we even considered at the beginning to instead build sort of Ethereum 2.0 instead of building Near, right? Uh, there are a few problems. One is that in Ethereum, there is no established process of how that progress is happening, right? So, for example, who is there to decide whether Ethereum has should switch to proof of stake or not, right? Like, if, if you follow Twitter, you will see they cannot decide whether or not to change the, the proof of work mining algorithm, right? right? And imagine what will be happening when Ethereum 2.0 is actually complete, right? And, they, and they're actually considering to switch. That will be uh, a pretty complex process. And so, near one of the things we're addressing is actually we're formalizing the way it is it is being updated, right, and how changes are made. So, so we're building this thing called on-chain governance. And that's a very contentious topic in general in the blockchain community. But I have my personal view. And my personal view in the bright world of the future, there's going to be one extremely slow proof-of-work system. It could be Bitcoin, it could be Ethereum 1.0, which is extremely secure, right? So it, it will have a dominant amount of hash power in it. Uh, and that system will have zero, on like, you know, code is law, right? So effectively, it, it cannot be tampered with. And so Bitcoin is slightly better candidate because Bitcoin actually has a history of code is law and, you know, no tampering with. Ethereum naturally has issues, like, you know, history of, of that DAO fork when they forked because of a, of a hack. And like in general, they, uh, they, they more, they sort of less, uh, how to say it? They they they're less fanatically obsessed with the immutability of the blo of the of the core blockchain protocol, right? right. But then besides that protocol, there, there's going to be there going to be other maybe one maybe multiple protocols like Near or Ethereum 2.0, which are proof of stake. They're significantly faster and they have some sort of on-chain governance process which can update it or like undo some disastrous malicious behavior or something like that, right? And uh, and the first one will be, will be more for snapshotting and for like super critical to immutability updates, which do not happen frequently, so you don't need anything fast. Uh, you, you need neither low low finality, no high throughput. You also don't need it to be cheap. And the fast blockchain is going to be with it. it's going to be actually running applications which are user facing. Right. So from this perspective, I don't think Bitcoin is going anywhere. But I also don't believe that Ethereum 2.0 will be able to uh, deprecate Ethereum 1.0 because Ethereum 1.0 serves completely different purpose. And I think it's not going anywhere, right? So even when Ethereum 2.0 is ready in three years, uh, I don't think they would be able to completely uh, take the mind share of the users. So that's going to be a very interesting adventure. Uh -huh. So right? and so, so Nier is not competing with those. Nier is, Nier is not competing with Ethereum 1.0. It it's competing with the future proof of stake, fast blockchains. Uh -huh. So everyone who's staking their 1.0 into the beacon chain, hmm, that might be something for them to think about. Oh, no, I think that will work, right? In this case, 
in this sense, Ethereum 2.0 will be just a side chain, right. right? And people staking to validate it. But long term, they're actually thinking of deprecating Ethereum 1.0. Like effectively, they, go, they, they want to completely remove the proof of work chain right. and move the staking to the beacon chain. So I think that will never happen. Huh. Interesting. And so you, you started talking a little bit about governance and um, it seems that one of the highlights that you have is strong consensus and you're using something called nightshade consensus, which is a Byzantinian fault tolerance algorithm designed for speed, simplicity and security. So unpack that a little bit. What does that mean for someone who might not necessarily understand the kind of more intrinsic technological uh, description there? Mm. So, so one thing to notice is that research is happening very actively, right? And so there were some changes, in particular Nightshade uh, in the in the most recent uh, design iteration is not a Byzantine full tolerant consensus anymore. Uh, and the motivation behind it is, is very deeply technical, but the idea is that in sharding, it's very hard to achieve inst- immediate finality because, as I said, it is impossible for all the validators to validate all the shards. Right. And so it's always possible... Uh, that one shard will be corrupted. It's extremely expensive and extremely hard, but it is not impossible, right? It is it is clearly easier than corrupting, for example, 51% of Bitcoin, right? And so it's always possible that later, like within few blocks after block was quote-unquote finalized, to actually realize that one of the shards was corrupted and there was invalid state transition. And so you would have to unroll anyway, right? And if, because you cannot get that, that instant finality anyway, it does make sense to use the overkill. Like, like Byzantine consensus has has certain overkill in it. Uh, the, the, like, it's way more expensive and uh, more complex than uh, non-Byzantine. So the latest instance, latest instance of Nightshade is even more simple. And so Byzantine full tolerant, it gives you finality within a few blocks after the block was published. Uh, so it's closer to Nakamoto consensus, actually, now. I, w- I was using Byzantine consensus before more as an example that you can actually reach security, right. reach block time less than 12 seconds. But uh, we... We personally decided for uh, not to use Byzantine full tolerant consensus at this point. So there was a little bit of a, I guess you can call it, a discussion on Twitter about kind of rollbacks, especially after the Binance hack. Um, mm-hmm. What's your opinion on rollbacks? You just alluded to it. Right. So, so I guess on the Binance hack, the rollback they were considering, it was more of a, uh, it is actually interesting property of the proof of work that in proof of work, the security, like the short-term security is way cheaper than than sort of the market cap of the system, right? So for you to unroll one day, assuming that all the miners are reachable and corruptible, it will, it will, it will just cost you the coin base and the transaction fees of one day, which in case of Binance hack was significantly less well, maybe one day was not significantly less, but if, if they wanted to do it within a few hours, they would be able to uh, to bribe the uh, the validators, right? And because it's mining pools, they would actually be able to just, they would only have to reach to three different mining pools and uh, and effectively corrupt them uh, to pay them more money uh, than, uh, than what they would have made just by continuing building the longest fork. And people can, can, can stop mining for the mining pool, right? Because mining pool, if the mining pool is malicious, the people in the mining pool are not. They can actually withdraw their hash power. But how quickly can they do that? That's the question, right? If it only takes three hours to do the rollback, that was actually feasible, in, I think. Uh, but but that's, that's the security assumption behind the Bitcoin. Bitcoin can get reworked if more than 51% of hash power is malicious, right? If you're corrupting hash power, it is malicious. 
Mm-hmm. So that's uh, uh, that's how the system is designed, right? So maybe it's philosophically bad, but technically this is the behavior. In proof of stake, that is actually more complex because in proof of stake, for you to do re- a rework, uh, you need to corrupt more than 51% of stake, right? And so that, that is 51%. Like, let's say that 30% of all the tokens is staked. They would actually have to pay something on the order of 15% of the entire market cap of the system. Wow. That's significantly more expensive. That's yeah. not to say that in some other, there are some other uh, scenarios in which proof of stake is less secure, right? There are long range attacks. But in this particular case, uh, proof of stake is more uh, resilient in the sense that you cannot do a short work, short term rework right. by, by significantly fewer than the, than, so, than like the, the value in the system. So moving on into some of the last components of what you've built. So you have a section on that flexible token. So the network is powered by the near token, but allows you to bridge from other networks as well. So users have the best possible experience. And then you have a hosted wallet. So if you can go into a little bit more detail about the the token and what you mean by allowing users to bridge from, from other networks and then a little bit more about the wallet. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, so, so near token is not much different from Ethereum token, for example. Right, so in a sense, it's just an internal token which has, uh, like, the supply demand is uh, uh, designed similarly. Right, so there is a demand because you need to stake it if you want to validate. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, sorry, there is demand because that's how you pay for the transactions, and there is supply because uh, uh, supply comes from the coin base from the uh, from the validating. Right. Uh, in terms of bridging, so one important thing is that uh, blockchains today it's very hard to build secure bridges. Uh, we have a very nice uh, whiteboard session uh with uh james from uh from uh from sumo where we talk about bridges and the only secure bridge you can build today like the the proper secure bridge is bitcoin to ethereum right, right. no other direction between any other two blockchains is possible to build securely you always have to use oracles right in near we're designing the near in such a way that a you can actually build a fully secure bridge from ethereum to near uh so like on near the you can have a smart contract which acts as a light client for Ethereum. And it is also possible to build a fully secure bridge from NIR to Ethereum, right? So NIR creates blocks, uh, we call them skip blocks, which are sufficiently infrequent uh, so that Ethereum can actually read them. And they design in such a way that Ethereum has all the proper primitives to uh, to verify their, uh, their validity. And with such a bridge, you can move any assets between Ethereum and NIR securely. It's not going to be very fast, right? But it's going to be uh, com- completely secure. So nothing nothing can happen to those assets. They cannot get lost. Nobody can in any way tamper with that bridge. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that allows you, for example, if you want to build CryptoKitties on NIR, you already have CryptoKitties on Ethereum, you can easily bridge them between the two chains. Or like DAI, for example, we can have DAI as a, nat- as a native token in the system because we can bridge it from Ethereum. Got it. Uh, in, yeah, in terms of hosted wallet, it's a little orthogonal. Hosted wallet is just a way to use the system, uh, which would be like a comparison would be to MetaMask. Right. When you install MetaMask, you actually have to go ahead and install something uh, else on your computer, or like if you install a trust, like a trust wallet or some other wallet on your phone. Right. While users, like imagine you try, you you want to attract a user to your decentralized application. It's it's an extra hurdle for them to go and install some some third party software. You would prefer them just to open your website and start using it, right? And so a hosted wallet allows you to do that, sacrificing security. Right. So if you're using hosted wallet as a user. Uh, you do not get the full security of the blockchain. Uh, the idea here is that when you just start using an application, you actually don't care about the full security of the blockchain. The, the blockchain security is designed to to protect assets on the order of millions and tens of millions of dollars. 
when you start playing a game, you have one crypto kitty, which is, you know, five cents worth. You don't need a 2048 bits of security. Uh, and the idea with the hosted wallet is that the user can actually start using the application, have the, like, give the application opportunity to prove its uh, usefulness to the user. And mm-hmm. once user actually has some assets they care about, at that point, they have an ability to complete, to switch the security, uh, like, g- gain back the full security of their account, install MetaMask or like some other wallet. Uh, create their own key pair, and at that point have the full security. So we call it progressive security technique, where you start with very high usability, low security, uh, but then you have this ability to switch to the highest security level with lower usability at any point in the future. And so a little bit of a tricky question, but we just saw there was a note out that Stellar went down for two hours. I don't know if you saw that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your opinion on those types of instances? Is that acceptable? Uh, well, that's unavoidable. People will always have issues uh, right. in the in the system, right? The question is how quickly pe- people can react and bring it up, right? So I'm pretty sure AWS, like, I mean, not, not sure, AWS went down as well, right? Most of the internet is hosted on AWS. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the idea is how do, you, how do you maximize the chances it doesn't happen? So I like a lot of Ethereum approach, and ultimately we, we will do the same. We will not be able to do it short term. Where in Ethereum, as you know, there are multiple clients, right? There is Geth and Parity. Right. But with the, for Ethereum 2.0, there's going to be eight different clients, right? So now for the system to go down, it is not enough uh, for one of the clients to have a bug. You will actually need to have a bug in the in the on the protocol level, right? Which is which is way less likely than having a bug in, in the code. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the proper approach. But still. It will always be the case that there are going to be bugs in the protocol, right? There was hard bleed. There was uh, uh, there was recently another bug on the. Uh, there was meltdown, right? Those will always be happening. Right. That's not avoidable. And so one of the things that we'd like to do towards the end of the show is getting to know our guests a little bit more on a personal level, and it's not necessarily too intrusive, but it's mostly about what you're reading. If you are reading, I know that obviously you're very busy getting near uh up and going out there um but what you're reading hopefully you get to read for fun sometimes and also in terms of music music speaks to a person's personality uh, tells you a lot about them so would love to hear you know those two items what you're reading that you uh that you think is really something special and what music you listen to and so reading you mean more like uh, on the like a sci-fi or more like uh, <laughs> Not for not not crypto reading per se. Although you can you know obviously, as we've always said on the show, everyone in crypto is one of the, you know some of the most well-read people in terms of economics, computer science, psychology, socioeconomics, you know all those types of different fields. But if you're reading anything, maybe from you know more of a kind of learning slash fun front, you know that would be great. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of learning, I think one of the books that was a uh, like many many people at me read it yesterday, and it was very inspiring. It's called Swarmwise. It talks about how a Swedish pirate party uh, actually took off back in the day, and how mm-hmm. they you know they had almost zero funding, and how they actually used the like the messaging and and the swarm the people to take off. Because that's exactly how blockchains will be taking off, and how applications of blockchains will be taking off. Right, and so those are very relevant lessons. Uh, in terms of music, myself and uh, also. Near is actually uh, like our diversity is a little pillaged 
and have a lot of Eastern Europeans. Eastern Europeans like metal, so many people at Nero listen, listen to uh, heavy music. Obviously, not everybody. People have different tastes. I personally listen to uh, to, to some sort of different sorts of metal. So is my co-founder Ilya. Uh, my goodness! Yeah. Oh, you're you are now in the second. Oh wow! So Jeremy Welsh from Casa was the first person to say metal, and. Uh, mm. <laughs> that was a that was a revelation. You were now the second guest, and now we've had over thirty some odd guests, thirty five guests. You were the second guest to say metal. So we're gonna have to do. We're gonna have to call like Ozzy or someone to get you guys some tickets to something because this is you know you're, there's not that many of you out there that have been on the show. I know uh, you know Peter McCormack and others have been talking about metal. I know Nathaniel Whittemore likes metal, but. There's not many of you out there that like metal, so this is a special group coming together. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I actually know quite a, quite a bit of people uh, huh. in block and listen to heavy music. Huh. But uh, everyone yeah. who comes on my show is always about classical music or electronic music. A lot of electronic heads in some other formats, but I guess I got to get more into the metal group. You're gonna have to help me get into more of the metal heads. Um, and so kind of rounding up, where can people learn more about Near? Where can they, you know, could they participate uh, either vis-a-vis being a part of the network, you know, you know, the token, any of that kind of good stuff? How can people get to learn more and participate? Yeah. So, so one thing I think that is worth mentioning is that we work in a very open fashion, both in terms of uh, development. Everything is open source. If you just go to github.com slash Near Protocol, you will see our progress both on the hosted wallet side and the protocol itself and uh, our development experience. Uh, but also we interact a lot with other protocols, right? So we don't think that there's a, much of a competition between protocols today, right? We're not fighting for those 10,000 developers that exist today on the blockchain. We actually, like we all collectively today working towards bringing the adoption higher, right? So there isn't much competition, I think, happening between the protocols. And so we, we're very good friends with Cosmos, Polkadot, Ethereum, and, and we at NIR create a lot of materials for people to actually learn more about technical details of those protocols, right? And so one thing we we run is it's called Whiteboard Series. It's a, it's a YouTube session where we already have 16 episodes with different protocols where we meet with the founders or core researchers of a protocol and spend a full hour in front of the whiteboard talking about the, the very deep technical details of their approach, right? So it's uh, on YouTube. If you go to youtube.com slash protocol, you will find a playlist with the whiteboard sessions. Uh, to learn about Near itself, you could naturally can go to nearprotocol.com. That's the website, and we have uh, quite quite a few materials there. If you're interested in sharding, you can go to near.ai slash shard1 and near.ai slash shard2. Those are two uh, very uh, comprehensive blog posts about sharding, where we talk about what sharding is in more detail, but also about unsolved problems. Sharding is by no means a solved problem today. And so we talk about what is not solved today. Um, and then also, uh, if you want to join the conversation, uh, you can always join our Discord. It's near.chat, uh, where we talk about economics, governance, the actual technology. Yeah, those are the main uh, links. I commend you because the education in the space is so needed. Obviously, many people know that I've been trying to address that from the investor side and kind of bridging the technical to the more investment side. And so what you're doing is so desperately needed. So I commend you on that. I didn't know that about what you guys were doing. And uh, I think I'm going to try to get on the Discord because that sounds like a great group. Um, this was Alexander from Near Protocol. This is a project, as I mentioned before, that I've been 
so badly wanted to get on this show and one I've been watching for quite some time. Hopefully we can have you guys back on again in a few months to catch up and see how progress is going. And uh, everyone check out everything that Alexander just told you to, and we'll be talking to you soon. Take care. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.